Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Thank you to Bolin Branch for supporting our show. Bolin Branch created a new standard in bedding by doing things the right way, not the easy way. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at BolinBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code WORM at checkout. Hey, Claire. Hey. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I have a question. Sure. Shoot. What are we doing here? We are reading celebrity memoirs every week, giving you the rundown and making our stupid little jokes. And if you don't like stupid little jokes, that's fine. But this is not the podcast for you. We are, don't forget, comedians. And so if you're like, why do they think they're so funny? It's because we've dedicated our lives to trying to be funny. Listen, if anything, we are doctors surgically implanting our thoughts into these stories and if that's not what you want to hear you can just read them pure but here we're cutting them with baby powder (laughs) I was gonna say we're cutting them with fentanyl but I don't know if that's appropriate it's not so if you'd like to snort our doctored stash I think we might have gotten into too many (laughs) metaphors I feel like we're mixing too many different ideas I don't think we could do doctors and drugs it's our special blend (laughs) Anyway, proceed. And as always, we love a five-star review. We will be reading all of them out at the end of the episode. And of course, up top, we always have Nikki's unisex comedy every Thursday, 7 p.m. in Williamsburg. It's free. We would love for you guys to come. It was so fun last week. Shout out to everybody who came this week. Also, if you missed the Moment House event we did last week, you can still watch the instant replay live until tomorrow, tomorrow, Wednesday, March 23rd. So get that in real quick if you're interested. And, you know, we've got merch. And, yeah, we've got fun stuff coming up. So keep tuning in your ears. Thank you for the ears. I'm glad your ears are on our frequency. And And Ashley. Yeah, Claire? If you yourself were a celebrity. Okay. Dare to dream. Someday. And you were to write a memoir. Yeah. Hopefully not. (laughs) What would you title last week's chapter? Should I make it about Bug again or no? It's your life. It's Bug's life. And I'm just living in it. Me too. Honestly, I feel like I've really become a mother in this last week. Everything about her makes me so happy, even though she's a fucking psycho. I had to take her to the vet. I mean, we. We went to the vet, me and Bug, my friend. And everything they tell me sends me to the brim with pride. They, like, looked in her ears and they were like, oh, she's got perfect ears. And I was like, I know. (laughs) We worked so hard on them. (laughs) Everything they tell me, they weighed her and they're like, oh, she's a good weight. And I'm like, perfect. Perfect. Everything, like, they look in her little eyes, and they're like, great eyes. And I'm like, I look at them every day, and I think, great eyes. I love that. Every single thing that they comment on, I'm like, oh, well done, Bug, and well done, me. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Claire. Yeah. If you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title the chapter about last week? Those of you who tuned into the Moment House you know that I, I had a bit of a tough week last week a bit of a toughie but we're coming out on the other side I'm feeling fresh as a daisy the sun is out it's beautiful in New York City and this weekend I have like a stacked weekend of social things and I'm really excited because I think like I'm reaching out to like old friends I'm making new friends you know I have a hard time staying awake past 10 p.m. oh my god you guys Claire outlasted me at a party last night I actually thought that Ashley was like bored and going to do something better <laughs> And then she thought she went to bed and I was like, I, I couldn't in my brain fathom it. I thought she was lying to my face when she said she was tired. Summer's coming. We're feeling good. 
I look ago as possible. <laughs> Do you know what I was thinking? Because I was looking at myself and I was like, Jesus Christ. But I think that we're both like shedding our winter cocoons. And I am like a lizard. <laughs> two weeks we'll have shed our winter skin and become butterflies. Yeah, but somehow like shedding the skin is worse than having the skin. Like yes. nobody looks best in winter and I'm like even worse than winter. That's what I mean is that's why it's like that's why right now it's just like an absolute train wreck is because like winter was seemed like the worst but in order for the winter to crumble off of your body you have to look like a crumble monster anyway but I just feel very excited and I feel like proud of myself not that like being social is pushing myself out of my comfort zone but I do get so sleepy I hope to find out I have an iron deficiency one day are you ever like <laughs> preying on anemia and you're just like I hope that there's a fucking answer for why I am a lazy piece of shit <laughs> I would love to put the blame on my own blood but alas I think it's my heart and my soul and my mind but alas anyway but I feel good I'm excited I'm bouncing back and I hope everybody is sharing in the springtime joy wherever you are in the world me too and Claire I don't want you to compare yourself with the book we read this week because this week we read incomparable <laughs> By Brie and Nikki Bella. If you guys don't know who these girls are, that's like very reasonable. I feel that they are in two extreme niches. They are in the niche of WWE, the Worldwide Wrestling Enterprise. Is that what it's called? No, that doesn't even line up. Like that was a lot of W's. World Wrestling Excitement. The Wrestling Wonder Extravaganza. Oh, is that it? Can I tell you? If our lives were staked on knowing what that stood for, I'm like kind of coming to the conclusion now that maybe it stands for nothing. Wide world of entertainings. Wait, that sounds close to the truth. Okay. Anyway, so they were, they're WWE girls. They're superstars in the wrestling world and community. And then they are also breakout stars on Total Bellas and Total Divas, which was a Bravo show that I did watch. So this book is somewhat predicated on the idea that you bought it because you know them, which is like tough because I don't I don't I've never seen the show and I've never watched WWE I found out that my dog's cousin girl what (laughs) bitch what (laughs) what did you just say do not tell me that your dog's cousin is in the WWE I'm gonna sometimes I just lose it with Ashley and this is one of the what finish your statement (laughs) I meant to say my brother's dog but that is my dog's cousin is named after a wrestler because I just thought she had the goofiest name. Her name is Ember. And then I found out she was named after a wrestler. And I was like, since when does my brother even know what wrestling is? Wrestling is one of those worlds that like it's a lot like Bravo reality TV. And you don't even know that someone's in it until you like accidentally hear them say a word. And you're like, I didn't even know you liked that. Yeah. So I'm excited to actually do this book. I liked it. It was like Mm -hmm. shockingly brought everything that we criticize most books for lacking. It is vulnerable. It is thoughtful. And there is growth. And baby, we love growth. Yeah. To compare it to the Dave Grohl book last week, it's funny because the Dave Grohl book was so much better written. He is obviously a more successful man who has had a larger impact on the world. But I'm like, it turns out what I really want from a memoir is just your therapist's notes. (laughs) I want you to go to therapy for 10 years and I'm going to read the findings. And that's kind of what this book is. Yeah, I think the actual structure of a good memoir is not a beginning, middle and end, but a childhood trauma (laughs) therapist's notes, how I applied those notes. (laughs) Yes. And so I'm so excited. We're going to get into it. We've got a double whammy for a double. What is it like a slam down of Bria, Nikki, Bella. Double header. Incomparable. The Bella twins were born. Actually, I don't know what their last name is. Don't tell me. Okay. What is it? I'm looking at their Wikipedia page and they have different last names because they're both married. And I like 
don't know what their maiden names are. Interesting. Oh, Garcia. Garcia Colas. They were born November 21st, 1983. That means at this point, they're like 39 years old. And this book came out in 2020. So they wrote it when they were like 36, 37. So I will say, in reference to the title of this book, Incomparable, they are quite comparable in being identical twins who ended up with the same career. And a career based on the fact that they are identical twins. Yeah. And they talk a lot about being compared, which would make them, in fact, comparable. I don't know. That was a tough title. Yeah. They're not the same, but they might be. You could compare. (laughs) And the way this book is written is in alternating chunks. Not even the chapters alternate, but within the chapters, there are chunks that alternate between Brie and Nikki. And you'd think it'd be like, okay, Brie tells one part of a story and then Nikki tells her perspective on the story. That's not really it. Brie will tell a story and then Nikki will tell a different story. And sometimes they Sometimes they line up. Sometimes you get two sides of one event. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes they're both like referencing the same topic. Sometimes they're not. It did take about 100 pages for me to like, get the flow of this book and figure out which one was which. I will say the first chapter of this book is one of the most chaotically written chapters I've ever seen. And we see this style a lot. This book is only 10 chapters and they're each like sizable chapters for the most part. Yeah. Which is a very low number of chapters for a book that is about two different people's lives. The book is only 230 pages, which is low for a a book about two people's lives. But so it starts out and like most of these memoirs will start out with kind of like they take you to the end they bring you to a single moment that's like really exciting and it's like how did I get here well we're gonna have to back it up and see or something or anything this book starts with like a couple paragraphs that just run the gamut of their lives we start with I made my Smackdown debut on August 29th 2008 this is a Nicole chunk then we leap ahead to a Brie chunk where she talks about her WWE music entrance song and then nicole's talking about her decision to get a boob job and then Bree's talking about their grandpa and then they're talking about she's like and nicole you know she got married to her high school boyfriend and you're just like what is happening here and then nicole's like we used to work at hooters then they're talking about their like childhood heroes they do have one line that i actually really liked because as everything me and ashley only like the things that remind us of our experience <laughs> She talks about like why they've been able to pull through because they did, as we will find out, have a very difficult childhood and they have like come through adversity and they are very honest and vulnerable about talking about their histories. But they say you can't escape pain as the darkness contrasting all that is wonderful and bright is what gives life texture. So we made an unconscious decision when we were younger to process the pain as best as we were able and then just spend the rest of our lives showing the world how strong we truly are. I think we were able to do this in part because we were able to draw strength and resiliency from each other because we weren't necessarily feeling low at the exact same times. Do you know what I thought you were going to read as the line that we both liked because it reminds us of us? What we definitely wanted to do with our lives was have fun. Yeah. (laughs) There is something about going through life with a buddy and I feel like we've been able to have that like I have you. And so when I'm like breaking down, you can be strong. And when you're like breaking down, I'm like, come on, slugger. (laughs) Get back out there. Chin up, champ. So this chapter does just leap all over the place. And we're not really going to get into any of the stories because they actually do return to them. Like we do get the full story on all of these chunks later. But it was confusing, especially because I don't know much about the Bella twins, except for that they exist. So, Oh, sorry. And then the last little fun tidbit from 
chapter one that I do think is worth noting. So they're talking about their debut and she goes, randomly, Freddie Prince Jr. was the writer who was working with me at WWE and he was a fount of positivity. Apparently there's like a ton of celebrities who just like like WWE. So I guess in the same way that they'll do like watch what happens live with Andy Cohen, they'll just go write a story on WWE. Interesting. Is that not such a random place to see Freddie Prince Jr.? It does seem like one, but like I haven't seen Freddie Prince Jr. in a while. So anywhere you see him would be random. Oh, I'm sorry. And then I have one last little thing from chapter one that I think has to be mentioned. They talk about how they were Hooters girls after high school And the one they worked at was the Mission Valley Outpost. The Mission Valley Outpost was actually the highest performing franchise in the world, probably because it was right after 9-11 and we were at war. (laughs) I guess they were right by a military base. So the guys would come back and like have not spent money in a really long time and be happy to be in America and they go straight to Hooters and tip great. But I love all the far reaching implications of (laughs) 9-11. Nick Lachey and Jessica Simpson's marriage, Mariah Carey's freedom. Nikki and Bree's financial independence. So this chapter does skip around a bunch. They do mention getting into wrestling and how they had moved to L.A. from San Diego. And then one of them moved back to San Diego with her boyfriend. The one who was still in L.A. was like modeling and trying to do acting and got an audition for the WWE and was like, we should just go do this. And that kind of shocked me. I guess it's because I don't know a lot about wrestling. And I do wonder if it's because of their Hooters experience where they did witness a lot of wrestling nights and see the fandom around it. I think like witnessing how important it was to people probably helped because I kind of feel like until last week, if you had been like, people really do watch WWE, I would have been like, when? So they were up there, I guess, right at like the turn of the 2000s. And I think pre-social media, there was this influx of girls that would today be influencers. Girls who like moved to LA and they're like, well, I'm hot. Like there's got to be a job for me somewhere. And like they don't know what they want to do. I think the cast of Vanderpump Rules was like this. I remember season one, they were like, I want to be an actor or a musician or a model or, you know, an entrepreneur. Like there is this idea that you want to be something and you're just going to kick the can around until the can kicks you, I guess. Because <laughs> she says at one point, somebody they knew gave them a job at a record label as A&R people. And they were like, it sucked. It was actually kind of boring. I was like, that's a job people like die to have. They just didn't go back. Yeah, they just drove away at one point and just never returned. She says, I craved the exposure, which I think is honest. And so I do think they had agents. They were working as like hot girls here, models there. And they were like, well, here's another job opportunity. And it ended up being like the best paid one. So they're like, well, let's keep going. And as we'll find out later, like they're naturally very athletic. It ended up being a perfect fit. But I do think that in the same way, now we see these girls and we're like, well, what exactly is it that you want to do? And you're like, you know, just like do it. (laughs) Yeah. And I do think that they were like meant for this. I do think the perfect opportunity found them magically because they are so athletic and so gung-ho to be chucked into a flight of stairs. They're the and perfect combo of hot athletic, yeah. Hot athletic, crazy. Like, they talk about fighting people. Before any wrestling experience, they were like, I don't know, someone would yell at me and I would slap them in their face. And I was like, what? <laughs> to be a female WWE superstar, you have to have a phenomenal body that you are not at all precious about. That you're yeah. like, I will keep this body toned and fit and taut and then you can just throw it into the bleachers. <laughs> I do not care. <laughs> So then we back it up to their childhood. Nicole writes, legend has it that I drop kicked Brie in my mom's rib cage so that I can make my grand entrance a full 16 minutes before her. But I think Brie hung back on purpose. She's always been more of a homebody, more reserved to let me test the waters. So then she gets into the story of how their parents met. Her parents met when they were in high school. Her mom got pregnant at 18. She had grown up very Catholic, so she didn't know anything about pregnancy. Her parents sent her away to one of those like residences for girls called Mission Hills where she had such bad medical care that they did not know she was pregnant with twins. She never at any point had 
a sonogram. It wasn't until she had the first twin and then they were like, there might be still one in there. And they had already cut the umbilical cord. So Brie had been up there for 16 minutes, no oxygen. And then they pulled her out and they were like, all right, actually, it's still good. This poor woman had just been sent away to have these babies by herself. She had met their father. He had come from like a really fucked up, broken home. Like she tells his story and they do a good job of very succinctly telling these tragic stories. It reminded me of the Jenna Jameson book in the sense that you're like, yeah, a lot of people on this planet just have like really hard lives. So he had been orphaned at the age of one. Oh, one. I thought he was like 13. No. So he was orphaned twice. Okay. So when he was one years old, his dad fell asleep at the wheel and careened off a cliff and died. The mom at the time was a heroin addict and just ditched her two kids. She had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. A few days later, the grandparents came home and found the three-year-old sitting at the table feeding the one-year-old dinner. They had just been alone for days. So the grandparents take them in. When he's 13, the grandparents suddenly die. Yeah. And once again, they're orphaned, and then they're taken in by, like, an aunt and uncle. But after that, like, he never really has a home. Nobody really is looking out for him. She writes that he was, like, too young to have processed this trauma. Or not too young to have processed this trauma. He just literally hadn't yet. She says, when we were young, our dad would cry about his grandmother. It was hard to feel sympathy, to soften towards him, to accept any of his apparent pain and grief as an excuse for the fact that he then passed all of his hurt onto us. It felt like one more way that he was trying to share responsibility for his violent behavior by making his grief something we needed to share. So as you can imagine, like she grew up in a home. The mom at 19 was pregnant unknowingly with twins. Mm -hmm. She has a father who struggles with drugs, very rarely home, constantly cheating on the mom and abusive and she's like we grew up in a household where like love and hate were in the same sentence and their mom wanted so badly for them to have a solid family unit and she says I think she would look at my dad and what he went through and say well he is the product of not having like a unit so the worst thing we could do to our kids would be to split up so they grew up until they were teenagers in this house that was super broken and they never told anybody they said that there were definitely signs of it and they feel that there were adults in their lives who picked up on it. Soccer coaches, people like that felt very protective over them and were helpful. Also, our grandparents' love was profound and stable. Everything we ultimately wanted in our own lives. And they would go spend the summers with them and have these really lovely summers. Like they had pockets of stability and they like had examples of love. And she says they were both in soccer and their parents would show up to every single soccer game. And they were like, a lot of kids on the team didn't have one parent show up. And we had two parents at every game. So there were moments of love. But she says, our parents fought all the time. They told us that they fought like that because they loved each other. It has taken many, many years and a ton of expensive therapy for both of us to begin to separate fighting and love to realize that they do not coexist to that extent in a healthy relationship. And you really see the therapy here. She says, it is possible to wish our childhood had been different while also being thankful that it turned us into the women we have become. They take so much responsibility, which is why I think I like really liked this book she goes to this day nicole and i can transition from full expletive meltdowns to peaceful dinner invitations it has been up to people like my husband brian to show us that that is not normal or maintainable to act like that and honestly he has the patience of a saint it has required a lot of therapy people have had to bring awareness of our behaviors to us because like our dad we can almost go unconscious in the moments of rage and not even remember what we said understanding how to react without feeling overwhelming in an immediate rage, practicing emotional containment instead of ramping up to an extreme reaction. It is tough stuff. So the way that her mom eventually leaves the dad is also really traumatic. I think they find out the dad's been cheating a lot. Like he goes on a full vacation with another woman. And at one point, Nicole and Brie 
run away from home. They had gotten like rebellious tattoos. So there's already all this tension in the house because the father on Christmas Day said he was going on a spiritual retreat, but really went on a cruise with another woman. And so they're like mad. They're 15 years old. They had gone and gotten these little tattoos. Their parents found out and they pull them both in and start screaming at them. I think they're screaming at Brie and maybe Nicole comes in to defend Brie. And so then the dad throws Nicole to the ground and in response, they both decide that they're going to run away. They catch Brie, but Nicole gets out. Like, yeah, they physically prevent Brie from running away. But Nicole leaves and she's gone for days. And Nicole gets caught by the police. The police have been told that Nicole was on drugs and she needed to be brought back. And then she says, I would rather go to juvie than go home and live with my dad again. And luckily they had enough evidence. They were able to call in like teachers and coaches to be like, there's something going on here. Right. And I think there were, had been like instances of abuse at school seen by the security guard. Yeah. So then the mom does finally kick the dad out for good because Nicole's like, I arrest me. I will not go home. Drug test me. I'm not on drugs. I'm not going home until my dad's gone. It was hard. And I think her mom, like a lot of the other moms you've read about, had a lot of resentment towards their kids for making them end the relationship. But she said, the four of us have recovered from those hard years, though, and have an incredibly strong bond. We know our mom would move mountains for us, and we have endless respect for her business acumen and insight. And they also have worked on their relationship with her dad. She said, and so too is our relationship with our dad. It is possible to not want a lot to do with him while still loving him from afar. I do think that one thing we've seen, I think from the Mel B book is that I think it's possible for a mom to think that they're doing the right thing for their kids and bearing the brunt of the abuse and just keeping the family together. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's always super obvious up front how much your kids are dealing with. Yeah, and I also do think she was, like, trapped in that very common cycle of when somebody is acting out because they feel they've been abandoned. Like, so much of the dad's pain came from, I mean, not being abandoned on purpose, but he had been orphaned twice, and that is, like, brutal to experience, that this feeling of the worst thing I could do to him would be to also leave him. So, I mean, you have to think about yourself at some point. And your kids. Yeah. They talk a little bit about being estranged from the dad for a long time and recently reconnecting with him. Bree says, when we sat down to talk, my dad was beyond the denial phase. He owned everything. He acknowledged how ill-equipped he had been. He had been doing the best he could with what little he had. And he admitted that he had offloaded his pain onto us in a way that was unfair and unforgivable. So I think that because the dad has also undergone a lot of therapy, they've been able to all sort of figure it out. He now has children that are two years old and six years old. Yes. Bree says she decided to sit down with him. Because after she had a daughter, she was like, the idea that anything that my husband could do to our daughter, that she would at any point cut him off entirely. She's like, I can't handle that. And I need to set a precedent of like forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And even if she's not like going back, eyes closed, arms open, just this idea that. That they're going to work through it to be the best version of themselves they can be. And that's probably not like a perfect father daughter relationship. It's probably like a cordial holiday visit. They say, you have a responsibility to yourself to process and work through the pain, which is very different from taking the responsibility of it happening in the first place. We have done a lot of work to let go of the anger and to only use it as motivation, never as an excuse. Now that I'm a mom, I understand the concept of unconditional love, how deep and basic and profound it is. I know that my dad loves me and I know that he's always loved me. I didn't always feel it as a kid, but there's no version of life where loving someone means that you'll never screw up. Like, I mean, I feel like that's like a huge that's thing to say. Huge. <laughs> they talk about his experience with drugs. And I find this very interesting because I do think it's like a pretty nuanced take. I don't think my dad ever went to rehab. He just gave up drugs on his own. Throughout our life, I never really knew if he was controlled by an addiction or just had a strong preference for drugs. He clearly really enjoyed them, but he also seemed capable of cutting them out and going cold turkey. I didn't really know. 
That is a really interesting distinction. And we talk about it a lot. Addiction is a disease. And not everyone who does drugs has it. Because her husband, Brian, had Mm -hmm. a father who was an alcoholic. And she's like, when we compare our childhoods, it feels very different in the way that like Brian's father was like enslaved by the need to be drinking. Whereas she's like, my father seemed to be choosing drugs to avoid what was going on. But he could cut him out here and there. You know what I mean? It wasn't the chemical addiction. So then we get into a chapter called Bear, which is about Bree's high school boyfriend or her senior year of high school boyfriend. They weren't even together that long, but he was this incredibly profound, artsy, but also popular kid. Yeah, he seemed to have like a real monk vibe about him. He gave her a lot of good advice. Like I think like the first calming presence in her life. At one point, her dad, who she had stopped speaking to, had cancer and he said to her, you need to go and see Tim because it is important in life to take care of your side of the street. Be responsible for your own part in the relationship. And I think that's like really good advice for an 18 year old high school boyfriend to give somebody. Yeah. And also, though, it turns out the dad did not, in fact, have cancer. He did just go to the hospital because he overdosed on meth. But nevertheless, she did the right thing. They had this really sweet, loving relationship. He would like make her mixtapes and give her presents and he painted her. He was very artsy, which Brie. So Brie is very artsy and Nikki is very athletic. And Brie was not allowed to pursue arts in any way growing up because her parents said people who paint do drugs. And then also when they saw how good Nikki was at soccer, they took Brie out of L.A. and made her do soccer, too, because they were like, yeah, like sports keep you off drugs. So in Bear, she finally found the outlet, even though it wasn't for herself, but she got to be who she felt she was on the inside for the first time. They had a really beautiful relationship. She felt like very loved and very protected by him. And she had planned to just follow him after high school. I mean, Nicole's future was soccer and Bree's future was she was like, I don't know. I'm just going to I love this guy and I'm just going to go where he goes. I feel like more than anything, their futures at this point were just getting out of town. That town had so much pain for them that they were like, we're going to just leave. Like our future's just not here. And then in January of their senior year, Bear is in a car accident and dies. A drunk kid who was speeding to a party, hit him and killed him on the way to visit Brie. And in this like weird twist of fate, Nikki was supposed to go out that night and she came home and said, well, I want to see Bear. I know he's coming to visit Brie, so I'm going to go home too. And like all these other people came up. They're like, oh, we all want to see Bear. So everyone was at Brie's house waiting for Bear. And then they got the call that he was dead and she was inconsolable. And she says one girl muttered under her breath that if he hadn't been on his way to see me, he wouldn't be dead. I wanted to hear that. In retrospect, that is insane, but it was impossible for me not to want to hold some other responsibility. It gave his death some meaning and a reason when it felt like it hadn't either. And she just like went into an absolute spiral. I've honestly seen it happen. I have a friend that this happened to in high school and that was like bad. It's horrible. She talks about like getting close to the mom and the the way to this day Bear is so important to her and how her current husband, Brian, like one of the great things about him is that he doesn't have jealousy about it. And I think that that is something we've learned about grief is that like if you lose someone you loved, you have to like hold space for that love. Yeah. And that like your partner just has to accept that, that they can't be bitter. And she still has the painting of her and Bear in her current house. She still listens to the mixtape he made her. There's like a collage of them in this book. And she like really sees him as her guardian angel and regularly talks to mediums and people. I think he was the first good calming presence that she had ever met in her life. And to this day, that is the voice in her head. It is like the guiding light that she has kind of like a what would bear do thing, because the way she views him is a reasonable, calming and thoughtful person. And so it creates this reasonable, calming, thoughtful thought process for her. 
Who knows if my relationship with Bear would have even survived high school? Who knows where our lives would have gone? It's a weird thing to have a relationship that was never allowed to complete itself at such a young age when you're keyed up to love with such abandon. When it feels so magical, there was no closure, no sabotage, no fighting until we hated each other. As we get older and wiser and a bit more seasoned, we make choices in relationships that transcend the beginning honeymoon phase. Everything is more measured, more subtle. I'm so grateful that Brian is the man he is. He can hold all of me, even the parts that will always be a little broken. I'm free to be sad when I'm sad without judgment or feeling like I need to hide in the bathroom to cry. My residual grief is not an affront to him or diminishing of all the wonderful people and things that I now have in my life. He understands that my heart is fully his, but that there's room in there to celebrate and remember Bear too. I like to think that Bear helped make me who I am by loving me. Brian's love extends to Bear as well. That's really beautiful. I mean, I know this is like a silly book about like reality TV star WWE girls, but between the two of them, they have a real gamut of life experiences that I think could like deeply touch almost anybody that read it. Yeah, I guess I don't find this book like small and silly at all. Like it really covers topics. You know, we read a Chriselle and a Chriselle is so nothing and you expect that from here. But I'm just like, I don't know. I think that that was like a really well put, beautiful sentiment that would resonate with anybody who had been through that. Yeah. So then we get to Nicole's high school experience, which you're like, all right, well, after reading the bear thing, what could go wrong? Bree's always come first. And I'm always like, wow, I guess Nicole just had nothing happen to her. And then you're like, oh, but boy. Okay. Trigger warning, you guys. Trigger warning, sexual assault. Literally at the same time that this was happening to Bree, Nicole, the soccer star who was being recruited by so many colleges, shatters her leg. Two weeks before Bear dies, Nicole is bedridden with a broken leg and shattered dreams. And her senior year and her way out of Arizona. And if there's one thing that isn't highlighted as a theme of this book, but 100% dictates the rest of their lives, it's the way that not having insurance, not having good medical care determines their fate. Yeah. First, luckily, Bree survived despite the lack of medical care that was offered to her at a home for literally pregnant people. If ever there were to be a sonogram machine anywhere, it should probably be there. It should be at a pregnancy house. I guess they're like praying the pregnancies away through. And then so here she snaps her fibula on the field. And this is going to like fuck up our international listeners. But because her parents did not have good insurance, the firemen came and they took her in a stretcher off of the field, but they couldn't afford an ambulance. So the firemen then put her in her dad's truck. They like gently lay her in her dad's truck where then they have to go to the ER. But because she didn't come via ambulance, she has to wait her turn in the waiting room with a snapped leg. So by the time that they get to see a doctor, her leg is so swollen that they can no longer do surgery. Yeah. They needed to do emergency surgery, but they're past the point of the leg is too swollen. She would have clotted and probably died or lost her leg. They had to move it anyway. Basically, they move it back into place as best they can, wrap it up so that the swelling goes down. And then like three weeks later, did the surgery that they didn't know if it would work. And it didn't. They did it wrong. They like put a thing up there and it just like did not heal properly. And her soccer dreams are dashed. And also, I mean, like, if they had done the emergency surgery, she probably could have played for the next year. But because it was so delayed and then the surgery itself was so bad and she, like, blames her parents. She's like, this was my future. They didn't get a second opinion. They just took me to, like, the first cheapest doctor they could find and let him do whatever they said. And because of how the surgery went badly, she just could not recover in time. Within the American healthcare system, most of all, you need an advocate. 
Back at home, she goes, after Bear died, our home was a terrible scene. We had moved into a smaller house when my parents divorced and Brie and I were sharing a room. At night, she cried inconsolably. Her body was just heaving in pain. I felt so far away from her, like I couldn't possibly reach her in her grief. I also couldn't light any of my own sadness on her either. It didn't help that I was immobile. At night, I would army crawl and drag myself across the floor to get into bed with her and try to calm her down. We were just two girls in Arizona with collapsed dreams and uncertain futures. Brie, in particularly, felt like everything she had loved had been taken away. She has some boyfriend named Ken at this point who is exactly who you'd assume she'd be dating, like a hot shot who's just jealous and they're always screaming and fighting. Like, a hot head and a hot shot. <laughs> she talks about like hanging out with Brie and just getting into like mean wrestling matches with her own boyfriend. She tells the story about how when she got her screws out, her mom was out of town, so she had to heal at her dad's house. And her boyfriend came over and the dad and the boyfriend like got into a fight and they both left. So then she was just immobile on the couch with no one taking care of her. <laughs> It was a weird time, the end cap to a pretty terrible four-year run. It only underlined for me and Brie that we needed to get the hell out of Arizona. We needed a fresh start far away. Nicole also opens up here about her sexual history. This is what we trigger warned against, so re-warning. She talks about how she had an abusive and controlling dad. She had never been allowed to really talk to boys. And so when she was 15 and she was finally allowed to like go out a little bit more and have a little bit more freedom, she went out a lot. And she ended up losing her virginity in a rape when she was 15 years old at a party she was passed out drunk and someone assaulted her she woke up with him on top of her and inside of her like ran away was obviously horrified and the next day he came up to her and goes well you're my girlfriend now at that time especially she i think she was in a catholic school like nobody was talking about it it was such like a virginity first guard your loins no one saying anything situation like it didn't even occur to her that yeah it had been assault and also the fact that he would come up and say, now that I've done that to you, I like own you. You're my girlfriend. He had no shame about it. So then she shortly after that is on a trip with her friend and her friend's mom and her and her friend decide to go out with these guys that they met and the mom lets them. She doesn't really want to go, but the friend is like, no, let's go hang out with these boys. They're hot. They're 16 years old and the guys are with her like 25. Yeah. There's three of them and they bring them back to a hotel. Room. Go to these boys' hotel room. And Nikki says she rejects alcohol the whole night and they keep pressuring her and pressuring her and pressuring her. Finally, she takes a drink and almost immediately she like goes numb. She wakes up and realizes that she's been raped again. She runs out of the room. Her friend has already run away. She runs back to the hotel. The friend is there like shaking and crying. It had happened to both of them. And she said, but like we were all so ashamed including the mother that we never told anybody. We didn't tell the police. And she goes, my own mom is finding out right now reading this book. I don't know. Like, listen, obviously it's not the mom's fault what happened to those girls, but I don't know how she could possibly live with her. I mean, that is who not only let them go out, which is okay. Fine. Teenagers are incorrigible. They're rowdy. They're going to do what they're going to do. It's not her fault that happened to them, but the fact that she failed them afterwards. And I think that especially, I mean, when was this like 15, 20 years ago, honestly, at this point, I think that it really does take an adult to say like what happened to you is wrong. And this adult didn't. So she had these two experiences pretty much back to back. Then senior year is when her leg breaks. Her dreams of getting out of town are shattered. Then instead of going to college, because now they don't have scholarships, they don't have plans, they don't have really any idea what they want to do with their future. They decide to move to San Diego to be closer to their grandparents and they just like it there. And she also talks about her decision to be with Ken, her hothead boyfriend. She says, I so desperately wanted a guy to make me feel safe, to undo all the bad things that had happened to me. Ken made it feel like love means violent protection, like the world was unsafe without a knight charging with a drawn sword. 
And I get that. I just want to quote these final two things she says about breaking her leg and how on top of like a terrible depression that she went into after the assaults to like lose your future like that. She says, I was still young my whole life in front of me, but it's a strange experience when your best laid plans, everything you've ever counted on disintegrate. And it's a stranger feeling when that future was contingent on your body, which you've always had complete control over. That period of my life was dark for many reasons, but it was really the first time I felt like I personally hit a wall. Life has a much greater purpose than it might sometimes seem to have on the surface. I'm not saying that there was a divine intervention that broke my legs, but I do think that in this bigger context, maybe we're not just here to live and die. I've always found that I'm most successful when I mix a certain amount of everything happens for a reason fatalism with driving really hard for what I want. I do think that that's like good advice and kind of the best anyone can do is work really hard and hope it works out the way you want it to. And if it doesn't, just assume that it's going to be okay. So Ken ends up moving with them to San Diego and he joins the army. They talk about like whether or not that was a good decision at the end. Probably not. They were trying to move on and like kind of start over. And Nicole writes, Ken reminded me of everything that had happened that was bad, but he had also been my lifeboat through most of it. He would continue to be the person I clung to when things got bad. And I kind of resented him for it. Rinse and repeat. I have daddy issues. I'm needy. I have to know when someone is there who I can talk to and lean on. And she does say she would like break up with him, want independence when something would go back, turn back. So they break up. And next she dates this guy named Jake. Jake was 10 years older than me. And that makes a lot of sense when I look back. To this day, I struggle with my desperate desire for a father figure, someone to tell me what to do, put a fence around me, in some ways to be my protector. He was a pro snowboarder, so I'm sure he was very cool. And then she says this about being in your 20s, that like her and Brie were getting to fights all the time because Brie rightly pointed out to me that I was living for Jake. I had stopped doing things with my friends and I had given up on my own life goals. I think it's moments like these that can fully derail women. It's hard to get it going in your early 20s as every step feels monumentous. You have no traction or experience under your belt and you don't have a network of people who can guide you or help you to your next big break. I've watched friends, even with fancy degrees from four-year colleges, just kind of blow it. They didn't push aggressively against those moments of not knowing what the fuck to do with their lives. If you leave it to life to figure it out for you, it won't always turn out for the best. I think we see a lot of people just choose staying in something comfortable because they like can't handle the amount of variables in their lives yeah but of course Jake sucked oh my god he often told me that if we would stayed together he'd probably cheat on me it was a messed up thing to say but I appreciated his honesty I will say I really related to that I've been in a really dark place before where having a guy who just like says mean shit to you feels nice because you're like yeah everyone's lying to me everything sucks at least they're telling me the truth to my face like the fact that he said something so insane means he's obviously not lying one time an ex told me (laughs) that he would be more attracted to me if I lost 10 pounds and I remember hearing that and being like I'm so grateful that he's not just like blindly calling me pretty when we obviously both don't believe it (laughs) That's how I used to feel about honesty box in high school is like I had all these things I hated about myself. And I feel like they're always like sneaking suspicions that you're trying to like trap people into admitting. Yeah. And it's like it's like you against the world. Like you're a detective of your own shittiness. And then I would have this honesty box where people would say vicious things about me. And I felt such a sense of relief of being like, okay, yes, I'm right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I started getting more confident, I would like think about when he would say stuff like that. And be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I look good. And I'm like probably heavier than when you first said that. And it like isn't a big deal. And if you like me less because of what I look like, you're insane. I'm so much cooler than you. So she ends up breaking up with the snowboarder Jake basically because they get this call to the WWE. And we'll get more into it later. But essentially 
she was like looking for a life. She ends up going back to community college at one point. She starts playing soccer again. And I think she's like really starts finding her confidence when she returns to herself because she is at her core. And this is Nikki, not Brie. Nikki is an athlete. She was the star soccer player. She was the one who lost everything. And I think the return to physicality and that strength brought her back to herself. So first she was actually going to try to go to Italy to play professionally. But instead they have agents. Brie was still in L.A. and she had an agent who got her this call from the WWE to come out to Tampa for no. So what happened was they got a call. Basically they were doing like a nationwide divas search because they used to call the female division of WWE divas. the divas. I think it was very much like America's next top model, that L woods thing on Broadway. Like we're looking for our next star. So what happened is they like entered this diva search competition. That was three days. They didn't win. But they were chosen to go down to this new Tampa. I think it's called the FWC. It's like a training program for the WWE. Sorry. One thing about this book, there's a ton of abbreviations and not a lot of explanations. So I'm just like doing my best context clues. So it's called FWC. FCW. Oh, sorry. Thank you. FCW. It's the training developmental camp in Tampa. And basically they are spending all of this money, the WWE, to like create this basically triple A league for newcomers where they can train you and test you out. And they're going to be like the first class of people. So they're sent down there. I think they had always had something small there, but for the first time they're going to put millions of dollars into creating like a whole campus. And they talk about how when they first got there, they just had like part of a canning factory. Yeah. That would just still had cans in it. Yeah. And like didn't have a C. So they'd just be like down in Tampa in the summer. Just like they were there like building the ring. So they were part of the beginning, but the problem is, you're down there until you're called up to the majors. It's exactly like minors and majors, I guess. And there are people who have been down there toiling for years. And also, if you get called up to the majors, you can just as easily get sent back down to the minors. There is no locking in place. And I also think it's probably hard because there's that added factor of it's not just athletic talent, which can be reduced to data. It is entertainment. You do have to be hot. You do have to be compelling. You do have to have a storyline. And one thing about Brie and Nikki is... Being twins is deeply interesting. Yeah. Ask Tia and Tamara. Ask Mary Kate and Ashley. Ask Dylan and Cole. So they actually went up to the majors as wrestlers. And that's very rare for women because the WWE has mostly male matches. And then they'll like throw the women a bone every now and then, the divas. But for the most part, when the women are on the main show... They're there as like accessories to the men. They'll like walk the men out. They'll like. They're called valets. They'll park their cars wherever. (laughs) A lot of times women need to develop their storyline as valets to the public until they get called in to fight on the main show. They made their debut as wrestlers, not as valets because they had the twin thing going. They had the twin thing going and I think the WWE was starting to expand. So pre Nikki and Brie. The Divas division had mostly been like that football league, that lingerie football league where you just like show up in a thong and make out. Yeah. (laughs) And I think there was a concerted effort at this point or not effort, but idea. There was an openness to this idea that the women could also be athletes now. Yes. And so Brie and Nikki were like the first class of people who were given any training at all. And it wasn't a ton. I think they were given one week to learn how to do all these moves and stuff. And then they started doing exhibition matches for like 80 people in like community college parking lots and like Jewish center theaters. Yeah. Like the JCC in Tampa. I honestly thought that these matches, cause I knew that the WWE was scripted. I didn't realize that it's actually improvised. It is not scripted. The storylines are fake, but the fights and the concepts 
are improv. She says, the more you have to memorize in terms of choreography, the more stress you inject into an already stressful situation. You can freeze, really go completely blank if you're trying to recall a planned move or a moment of choreography mid-match. If you're racing to get to move A, B, C, or D, then you don't have time to stop and think and react in the moment. Developmental was critical for learning how to get in the flow, read each other's bodies, how to talk to each other throughout the match. I mean, that is really interesting that they have to learn how to like improvise beating the shit out of each other and they are throwing each other around like these are really intense moves and you had to learn how to like roll with a punch literally so they talk about learning how to be able to converse with each other through like how they're holding each other's hands the movement of their bodies they know going in who's gonna win but the rest is up to you they say they use the ref sometimes like the way they talk to the ref is like actually code to the other person and part of why you really can't plan it in addition to what ashley said like it's much harder to remember moves when you're doing something this live with this many variables, if one mm-hmm. thing goes off. But also, these things are so low budget, considering I think the WWE is like a billion dollar industry. They will change the lineup last minute. Last second. You'll be told that morning that you have an eight minute fight and they'll be like, okay, Brie has to be the winner. Eight minutes. Show up. Good luck. And then they'll kind of go back and forth and be like, all right, what's the mood of the fight? And then right before going on, they'll be like, hey, by the way, you've been cut down to four. And then she's like, sometimes you'll be out there for 90 seconds and the ref will be like, all right, take it home. And that's your cue that you have to do one last move and wrap it up. But like sometimes an eight minute fight will be cut down to 90 seconds, just like on the spot on live television. So if you have it choreographed, there's just no way you can know what's coming next when the timing changes like that. So they have to just improvise it and things go wrong a lot. Yeah, people get very hurt. I mean, it is like true physicality. They're not beating the shit out of each other, but they are jumping on top of each other. They talk about this one move where you would throw someone into the stairs that lead up to the ring. And they said that when you're doing this move, you plan with the crew to make sure the stairs aren't locked in so that when you hit the stairs, they roll with your body and no one unlocked the stairs. And so she was just chucked into a staircase. One of Nikki's go-to move is like the rack slam where she holds you on the back of her shoulders, you're sideways on the back of her shoulders like a T. And then she just drops to her knees, which I will say, I don't know how that would hurt them. But believe it or not, this like almost drives her to being paralyzed. I will say like everything about this had me shaking. Like when they talk about how you like are getting the shit beat out of you, but you like kind of just move with it so it doesn't hurt that bad. I was like, I don't know. When someone like brushes up against me, I cry. I do not know how to take a hit in any capacity. <laughs> also to just like be able to read each other's body moves. And she talks a lot about how, so at the end of the day, even though wrestling is like one person wins, it's a team sport because everybody has to be involved and the energy of how it's going. The harder you sell losing, the better the winner looks. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're winning or losing, getting booed, getting yayed. What you want is to entertain <laughs> getting people. Getting yayed. was the opposite of booed. Cheered on. Damn it. Celebrated. <laughs> you had it right there. Okay, <laughs> you win, Ashley. I love doing stand-up comedy because of the way the crowd yays. <laughs> anyway, back to the low-budgetness of it all. So, like, they're making a shit ton of money, right? Like, Vince McMahon, who's the CEO, very rich man, they would have to show up with their own costumes. For years, they were showing up with their own costumes. There's a lot of bullying, I guess, that goes on, specifically in the women's division, because there was so little TV time that there was a lot of bitterness, I think. It feels very competitive. So the first six weeks, they were on television with the WWE. They weren't allowed in the locker room by the other girls, so they had to get dressed in the arena bathroom. <laughs> Imagine going to see the New York Rangers playing, and somebody's in the urinal, lacing up his skate, and being like, the boys are being mean to me. <laughs> yeah, they like get found out that they're changing in the bathrooms and the office goes to the other women and are like you have to let them use the locker room 
And they showed up in their own costumes and somebody was like, that's my color. So they had to run to like a Dick's Sporting Goods, buy new costumes, make them on the way over. At one point they got fucked over because apparently the call times for TV are just like word of mouth. So they had been told by somebody that they needed to be at the stage at 7 p.m. that night and they actually had to be there at 2 p.m. And they got in so much trouble for being five hours late. And I'm like, what do you mean you had live TV on like primetime television and there was not a call sheet? What do you mean you just word of mouth let the talent know when they needed to show up for work? I will say this part, I agree with everything they say, but I wonder if there's more to the story. Yeah. They talk a lot about how much the women were like fighting within each other and they take a very hard stance of the infighting holds us back. And if the women band together, that's how we succeed. There's no point in tearing other women down. I do wonder how much that is because they got on TV very quickly. They were on TV as wrestlers very quickly, not as valets. I don't think they had it easy by any means. I don't think any of these women had it easy. Like they didn't come from a wrestling family. They didn't come from years of training. They didn't come from the independence. They literally just kind of like learned about wrestling and then were professional wrestlers within the span of a year. And a lot of people had a hard time with that. A lot of people really hated that about them. And they were like, I don't understand why it matters. And it's like, because you're not from that world and that's why you don't understand why it matters. <laughs> yeah. You and I come from the world of stand-up comedy, which is very earning your stripes. <laughs> and people have a really hard time with someone just showing up. Like someone like an actor who just decides they want to do stand-up comedy. You haven't earned any of it and you're just like on a headlining tour, like get the fuck out of here. I think the way that, you have to learn the ropes is really hard and unfair, but I understand industries where learning the ropes is like a big part of their culture. She says, the thing that was ultimately the most frustrating was that it wasn't clear what the other women were trying to accomplish. Maybe they were trying to haze us to the extent that we'd give up and bail. We knew we needed to wait in line and that there were 10 women ahead of us, but we also knew that no woman in the locker room had the control over that line in the first place since everything is dictated by management. I think that maybe that's why the women behaved so badly. They sniffed out scarcity and felt completely powerless to control their own futures. It was easier to shit on us than to submit to their own powerlessness. I do think to be like, I don't understand why in this like very niche insular world, there is this unspoken hierarchy. And they even say they got put on TV. And then at one point they were just taken off for 11 weeks. And I do think they have a ton of grit and they are very smart about staying involved. They said when they noticed they had been taken off TV for 11 weeks, which is a really bad sign that you're about to get written off forever. They went to them and found all these underclass ways that they could get back on TV. Like they offered to be the valets for every celebrity specifically. They offered to help with these kind of like C-League pre-TV stuff to start building up storylines. They are very active about we're grateful for anything we can get. And they do go on and on about how they were like to be paid to travel the world and just like entertain arenas and have fun with our friends is so incredible that we would have done it for free. How could these people be complaining that they're not getting more? Because a lot of these women have trained half their lives for it. Yeah. And then <laughs> didn't even get the opportunities they get. And I do think that not that it was handed to Brie and Nikki. I do think it's very smart to say, OK, I see that you're not using me the way I want to be used. I'm going to go in and see how else I can be used by you and do less glamorous things. And I do think that that is like why they're so successful. It's why they're so successful, but it also makes sense why a lot of girls get really mad. Like it's not their fault, but I think that when you are raised to believe that there's this way of going about things and then you see people with no understanding of this culture go in and just say like, I want this, I want this, I want this. Like, yeah, their way works better and makes more sense. But like you think they're breaking these unspoken rules and so you hate them. There are so many unspoken rules in WWE. I mean, they go through how horrific and terrifying it was to start. Like one of the rules is that when you're new you have to go and say hello and shake everybody's hand that you walk by in the background area 
And they were like, to us, it made sense that like if somebody's in a deep conversation, you just like take a lap, say hi to everyone else, come back when they're less busy. And I don't know what the consequence of them doing that was, but they were like, it was terrifying. You just are supposed to sit and wait for them to be done with their conversation to pay your respect. That's how intense it is. And they take it very seriously. And I do think it is like this whole world. I think Nicole and Brie have a really hard time not seeing that there is like a deeper layer to this frustration. Brie says, after all, we had to share a womb and knew that there was a way to share the stage with other women as well. We knew firsthand that multiple women can have success simultaneously. No one gets ahead when you screw people over and make them fail, particularly in a sport like wrestling, where it was on all of us to make each other look good out there. That is like a very simplified version of what the frustration is. I do find it interesting that that's their perspective, because I could see how growing up with a twin would fuck with your head so badly that like you're always competing. You're never good enough. But she says, you know, I have a twin sister who is as pretty and talented as I am. If anyone should have felt threatened, it should have been me. Growing up like that, constantly compared to Nicole, I know how ridiculous it is to feel competitive towards other women. There were certainly a lot of battles for equality to be fought at WWE, and I understood why the women felt frustrated. Still, it seemed awfully silly to think that our battles should be with each other. By infighting and stepping all over each other, we were enforcing the cycle. They do talk about how as they rose through the ranks, they became leaders in the locker room and tried to create a culture of acceptance and being kind to new people, which then kind of came to bite them in the ass a little bit later and Nicole finds a lot of frustration in like the new cycle of girls yeah and then some other things that add to the problem is of course one they both end up with extremely high profile wrestler bows for those who don't know Nikki was engaged to John Cena who I think is like currently the biggest wrestler in the world and then Brie is currently married and has two children with Brian Daniel Bryan who Brian Daniels Brian no Daniel Bryan no Brian Danielson I think but his real name is Brian His real name is Brian, and then he goes by Daniel Bryan. But she was married to him, and he at one point was like the champion. His name is Brian Danielson, but he goes by Daniel Bryan. What the fuck? He was the champion at one point. And then on top of that, their mom's third husband was John Laurinaitis, a.k.a. Johnny Ace, the head talent of WWE. So that looked bad for a minute when people thought that, like, oh, their mom's boink in the head office so they're like of course you're getting preferential treatment and you're moving up in the world and you're getting things that women have never gotten before it's because you have all these advantages and they were like we're doing it for everybody so then at one point they felt like their storylines had really dried up and they just weren't getting what they wanted and their five-year contract had wrapped they were tired of being called divas they were tired of being reduced to two minutes out of a three-hour tv special like all of the women would get a single two-minute fight where the men would get the other two hours and 58 minutes. And they were just like, fuck this. And they walked away and they knew their worth. And I have to say, like, props to them. That's a hard thing to do. They were only gone for 11 months when they decided to come back bigger and better than ever. But what had happened in that 11 months was first they were talking to E about doing a TV show. And it turns out so was the WWE. So what they ended up doing was marrying the two ideas and they created Total Divas, which was a TV show about the women in wrestling, which was like genius because it gave them an entirely new audience. I mean, I am an example of somebody who has never in my life watched wrestling. But you know the divas. And then I knew the men because the divas around the boys. I went to a wrestling match one time. It was actually quite enjoyable. There was an 11-year-old boy next to me who explained all of the backstories. It was very helpful. They talk about when they came back to the WWE with this show, and they said some of the wrestlers acted like they didn't want the cameras around and that we were sellouts for going on reality TV. Like, what are they doing then? What is the WWE if not reality TV? And they say that they go, um, we're all here fighting for TV time. So we got ours. Fuck you. And they're like, people would hide their faces backstage 
stage, they wouldn't be on the camera. And that's a bad call. This will just make you more famous and people will want to see you on the main stage more. There was this whole problem with in WWE, there's a thing called kayfabe. It's this idea that back in the olden days, pre-social media, pre-everything is screened all the time. If somebody were to see you out and about and be a wrestling fan, you were supposed to stay in character. So apparently... WWE had kind of dropped this practice of kayfabe a few years earlier because it was just becoming impossible with like how much it was growing and social media and you know everybody's watching all the time but a lot of the old timers in the WWE industry felt that the TV show is what destroyed the practice of kayfabe and so there was like a lot of bitterness there and then also a lot of the fans were mad at the Bellas for being like you've ruined my perfect idea that this is a real thing which is like I don't know you are a grown man and you need to get a grip and maybe a good night's sleep and I would recommend top quality sheets to get well rested and let your brain recharge so you can be a normal decent human being I know that a good night's sleep helps me recharge and that's why I love my favorite sheets by Bolin Branch there is nothing that puts you in a worse mood, more ready to brawl than a bad night's sleep. And Bolin Branch makes the softest organic sheets on the market. They get better with every wash and comfort isn't their only standard. They also use 100% sustainable raw materials and is the first fair trade certified manufacturer of linen. You can feel as good about your Bolin Branch sheets as they feel against your skin. I am obsessed with my sheets. You and I have these signature hemmed sheets. Can I tell you? So Bug is not allowed in my room yet because she's a baby and I'm just like nervous about her chewing up everything I've ever owned. So I don't let her in my room, but she loves to sneak into my room. It's her favorite game. And she, when I have the Bowling Branch sheets on my bed, will just crawl into my bed and she'll snuggle deep in the sheets and then she'll just wait there for me to find her. And when I walk in, she's wagging her little tail being like, could I stay? Could I stay? Could I stay? And she doesn't do that with any other sheets I own. It's always the Bowling Branch sheets that she sneaks into and she just wants to, she just wants them so bad. They are buttery, soft, organic, lightweight cotton in a classic sateen weave. Bowling Branch signature sheets come in seven colors. I have spruce. I have white. Also, they give you a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. So you can just triple check that you're getting the best night's sleep of your life. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at BowlingBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code WORM at checkout. That's BowlingBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com promo code worm so they've come back well rested after 11 months out of the wwe right and they're ready to rumble as they say in the wwe that is what they say <laughs> so they come back they actually do have a lot more arguing power and when they come back they have agreed to stop calling it the divas division to raise up the women to also call them superstars but the one thing that they do that's kind of messed up that they do with the bellas is the way that they write it into the script they say that it's this new group of up-and-coming wrestlers from the nxt division who have been trained at a higher level more athletically than any other group of women before and they are fighting to be seen as superstars and that bella and her friends like brie nikki Paige, natty a bunch of other women that came out of their generation and their class are fighting to stay divas and it's that they're like overthrowing these women who are holding the women back. <laughs> so these women who have fought so hard to be seen as equal are now being positioned as the people in power who are keeping the women down. <laughs> so they come, they take it, the battle rages on, but honestly it all ends up being good for the women. The women have more of a chance than they've ever had before. And then the rest of this chapter is sort of like all of the accomplishments of the female WWE divisions. And I hope to God that I'm not misassuming when I say None of us know what any of this means. <laughs> or if you do know what it means, you've already lived it. Well, I think that the inspiring thing about this chapter is the way Brie acknowledges that the past decade at WWE has taught us the big lesson 
in the power of uniting for a cause. Even though they were unhappy with the way the storyline was being written, they recognized that this is what they've been fighting for and they do have to just take a knee and let it happen because this is ultimately what they all want and it's what's best for the women of the WWE. It just sucked so hard to have to be the person who takes it on the chin. So next chapter, they get into kind of their long-term relationships and Brie starts and she talks about how for a lot of years, six years, she dated a guy named Richie Coatson, who was the guitarist of Poison. And so she also, she met him when she was 21 and he was like 35, I think. In the same way that Nikki liked having that older man who was more established, I think Brie liked that he was the artist that she always wanted to be. She said he was huge in Europe and would watch him play arenas. And obviously like that's very attractive and very easily like slid into his life. They didn't break up until she ended up joining the development camp. But Mm -hmm. so she talks about that relationship and learning how to stand up for herself. She says, I was too intimidated to be honest about my emotional needs. And so I let him walk all over me. And I don't think that was his intent. I just never challenged it. I just didn't give myself permission to ask for what I wanted, like true intimacy and freedom to pursue my own career and ultimately marriage and kids. Meanwhile, Brie gets into who she's dating at this time, which is like during that relationship at the wrestling program, she met a guy she calls Brad, but is Dolph Ziegler or Ziggler. Who knows? I I knew. I guess... Here's the thing. I want to issue a deep apology to anyone who cares about WWE because I know that we're like butchering. <laughs> I know that we're butchering it and I don't mean to belittle it. I think I don't mean to belittle it. I actually think it's really cool. And this book made me want to get into the WWE. I just don't know anything about it. And so I feel like I'm learning about something like like another language. I think what's tricky about this, too, is it's <laughs> like. In this book, she gives fake names to all of these people who are known by their stage names. So there's like three, like to each story is like, well, this is what was happening in real life versus what was happening on the stage at WWE versus what was happening backstage at WWE versus what was happening on the reality show versus what was, and you're just like, (laughs) and then also we're twins. So there's two of these versions for every version. And I'm just like, okay, I'm keeping up. And they go by Brie and Nikki Bella, but like. Brie spells her name with no E in real life. Nikki goes by Nicole in real life. Their last name isn't Bella, which is also a first name. So if we get a bit tongue-tied, please be patient with us. These are tricky, tricky words like Dolph. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so Nikki is hooking up with Dolph. She finds out that he's fucking her best friend. They break up. And he's like only once or twice. (laughs) And she's like, that's not okay. And he's like, oh, man. This I found really interesting. They like set up homes in other cities and then travel with the WWE. So Brie moves to New York City. Nikki is in San Diego. Brie is loving it. She got out of her long-term relationship with that old dude, the poisonous dude. Do you get it? Yeah. And she loves New York City and I'm so excited for her. She has a cute little studio in the Greenwich Village. She's like fucking French dudes who own wine vineyards. She says that her big thing was just like banging every bartender in town. And she's like, I'd have so much fun because she's like, when I'm in New York, it means I'm not working. So I would come and just do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. She would go to galleries. She'd go to museums. She's going to music performances. That sounds fun. She fell in love with the city and I fell in love with the city through her. She kept calling herself Carrie Bradshaw. And I was like, eh, close. That's another person who lived in New York City. Yeah, you guys both lived there I love that there's this idea that there's one person historically who's had fun in New York and it's Carrie Bradshaw and if you've ever enjoyed it here you're just like her I hope that we can someday replace Carrie Bradshaw as the names of people who had fun in New York I will say we are very local (laughs) (laughs) so if you've ever had fun in like a very specific five block radius of Williamsburg you're just like us (laughs) I went to New York for the weekend and I got too drunk and 
went home to kiss my dog. I'm a real Ashley Hamilton. <laughs> so then they get into the injuries that happen during the WWE. And Nicole talks about breaking her neck. So she had a really traumatic injury. This was an injury that she was experiencing extraordinary pain in her neck and back. And her legs kept going numb. And the doctors kept telling her that that was like probably fine. I want to say I don't actually know that much about doctoring, even though I've watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy. I think if any part of your body is going numb, it's not fine. Multiple doctors refuse to even give her an MRI. She says my legs would just collapse out from beneath me during my finisher. And at one point she would break out in all these like bumps on her back and she would just have to lie down on ice. And she said she couldn't lie in bed for more than a few hours at a time because it was so viciously painful. Yeah, she says I was sharing a room with Brie on that trip. And in the middle of the night, I woke up because I couldn't lie down anymore. I stood in the bathroom for two hours crying because of the pain. I knew I was in trouble. Yeah. So she keeps going to these doctors who won't give her MRIs. She wants to see the WWE professional doctor. I guess they have one on staff, as that makes sense. And she's told that he has no time for you. And so finally she calls back and goes, if I was a man, you wouldn't make time for me. I can't feel my legs. And finally they're like, all right, fine. That doctor finally does give her an MRI and his jaw dropped. He had only seen the same condition in one pro football player. He instructed me to get a cortisone epidural and see if I could recover on my own without surgical intervention. So then she goes to the doctor for the cortisone epidural and the doctor looks at her x-rays and is like, what the fuck? You need surgery now. Well, no, she found her own doctor. Who's like, you need surgery right now. And basically he's like, so the way that we would fix this would make it so that you could never wrestle again because we'd have to fuse the two herniated discs together. But he's like, so we're going to try a second thing where we come in and we can partially fix it. But he's like, if you are to get bumped, jostled, whatever, in the next nine months, you will end up dead or paralyzed. You are so on the brink of death right now. One little thing could ruin it forever. And so she has to get this surgery done. And for the next nine months, she can't drive on the highway yeah like it is so serious how safe she has to be so she comes back he's like if you ever get bumped again in any way that fucks you up you will be paralyzed and so she goes it was hard to hear but I realized what I had to do I had to only wrestle part-time so she like fights through this and like just keeps deciding to keep wrestling and she's like I hated having to ask the women to be careful of my neck but if they weren't careful I could have been dead so she goes back and she keeps wrestling. She's wrestling fewer matches, but like one of the matches she does wrestle, she ends up getting proposed to by John Cena. She becomes the SmackDown champion. She gets all of these huge things that were like such a victory for her fight for equality for women in the WWE. So she's like happy with it. And I guess she's still alive and walking around. At one point, something that makes me laugh about like how physically impressive these women are is she's like something that helped me get back into shape for wrestling again is I did Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> And every other celebrity's experience of dancing with the stars is it's like the most physically brutal and demanding thing of your life. Like people are like just bawling. Olympic athletes go and they're like, this yeah. is hard. Yeah, but she's used to being like physically chucked to the ground often. So I feel like dancing with the stars where you just like get chucked to the ground sometimes was probably kind of nice. So then we get into the story of Brie and her husband, Brian Daniels. Brian yeah. Daniels. And I mean, she gives the freaking low down. So they met because they had a storyline together. So he's a very specific and controlled man. That's a very generous way to say. He is definitely not my dream guy, but they seem happy. She loves him a lot. They just like hit it off and they start talking. And the thing about Brie is she is quite like a nature girl. And Brian is like an ultra environmentalist. Yeah. She's like, I love animals. He loves animals. <laughs> So they start dating, but this is when she's living in New York and she's promised herself to be single for two years and she really wants to explore. And 
the more they're hanging out, the more it's fun. They like have sex. But the thing is, he is not a casual man. And the minute they have sex, he's like, well, now we're together. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh. And they like get into a lot of fights. And I think he asks her to be his girlfriend three separate times and she turns him down. And then finally on the third time, he's like, okay, well then it's over, which is fair. If the gender's reversed, you deserve the commitment you want. But she really loved him. She says, I didn't want a serious relationship. I just wanted freedom, which included the freedom to see as much of him as I wanted. And she does acknowledge that that's not like a fair thing to do to someone who wants commitment from you. And I do think people get into this situation where they're like, I want singledom and I want to just explore. I don't want to like be locked down. But when you meet the person that you should lock down with, you can't decide what date you're not going to be single anymore. (laughs) Another problem that they had is, so his dad was an alcoholic, as we mentioned. And because of that, he's never had a drop of alcohol. He's never had a cigarette. He's never had any drugs. He is incredibly straight edge. And he is the kind of person who... I'm not obsessed with, but he is somebody who has his rules for how life is to be lived and he does not stray. He also does not always understand when other people don't want to live by those rules. Like she says that he's very concerned about the amount that she drinks and she's like, I cannot drink if I want to. I just like wine and let me have it. But he's like the smart one. He's so interesting, blah, 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 blah. One of his rules that stressed me the fuck out is that he doesn't believe in saying I love you. He didn't say I love you to her until the day they got engaged. She says that she understood where he was coming from. Like once he'd said it, it was so much more meaningful. She goes, when he finally said it, it was incredible. Even though I knew he had loved me for a long time, he always made me feel cherished. He said it with his eyes, his actions, the way he looked at me, touched me, protected me, nurtured me. On the flip side, I've been with many guys who said I love you all day long, but never made me feel like there was any intention behind those words. We had a couple of epic fights about the L word over the course of our relationship. Not so much about his refusal, but but the fact that he can be so rigid and yielding. And the fact that he has so many rules, whereas I am a free spirit. With Brian, it's a lot of I don't drink, I don't say I love you, I don't, which led me to the inevitable question of then what do you do? I'll spare you all the details, but there was one moment when we were dating where we didn't use protection even though we always did. And I checked in with him after. Are you sure you're okay? You always said after marriage, and I know you have rules about this. It's fine. Are you sure? It's fine. And so he went and took a shower, and he came back, and he goes, I'm fine with the decision. And she's like, do you know how bad it feels for your boyfriend to act like you defiled him <laughs> because one time you didn't use a condom? That's a very controlling way to be without like acknowledging you're being controlling. But she also has her problems. She talks about how she would lash out a lot, and she is like her sister and her dad where they – when they're hurt and mad, it snapped to like viciousness. And his response was he'll just freeze her out. And she talks about how they've both worked really hard on. She has done a lot of work to recognize that you can't go that far that quick, but he can't be so cold in response. But so that's what I like about their relationship a lot is that like they both have very specific reactions to things and like ways of handling it. And it seems like they're both doing work to like meet each other in the middle. And I think that that's, that's all you can ask for in a relationship. He talks about his battle with depression and how when he was on the show, he was had a really hard time with depression and he chose to leave it all in because he, like, wants to help people. They're just, like, kind of two quirky birds. <laughs> Once again, the people who find wrestling. Nicole opens up about her relationship with John Cena and what really came to roost there. She says, I, I'd understand how the patterns in my life and my relationship with my father informed how I react to love, boundaries, and feelings of abandonment. I think I could have averted some of what happened. Because my dad left when I was 15, I learned how to fill in the holes I expect to be left behind and to find a way not to confront or acknowledge those feelings of loneliness and abandonment it's almost scarier when someone seems like they're sticking around she never names him but her boyfriend that she talked about is John Cena and a lot of their relationship was showed on their show and so I know because I watched it the premise was basically that he said I'm never gonna marry you I'm never gonna have a kid he's against marriage against children 
and she really wanted both. And so finally he compromised and proposed to her and it was this big deal. But at the same time, Brie was having a baby. And I think Nicole finally realized like, I just can't compromise on that. And so they broke up. And so that was kind of like the public narrative of what happened. And so this chapter very much takes like what she did wrong. Very like looks inward, which I think is a response to the fact that she's assuming, you know, the other side, you know what he did wrong. So here's what she's copying to. While my ex and I tried our hardest not to go too long without seeing each other, looking back, I don't think it was enough. It is easy to recognize that our long stints on the road and working all of our various side hustle jobs left me feeling almost pathologically lonely. I just didn't know how to identify the emotion, and I certainly didn't know how to ask for what I needed. I was intent on fitting in the contours of my ex's very busy and big life. That was paramount to me, pleasing and keeping him content, not voicing my own needs. He had no idea I wasn't getting what I needed because I never said anything. The pleasing bug is another side effect from my turbulent childhood. Which I also respect that she took that responsibility. And we've seen it a couple times in this book where they'll be like, these were the needs that I never vocalized. And I think we forget about that. And I don't want to like blame anybody, but I think that we don't see that side of a relationship falling apart that often is someone saying like, these are the things that I needed and I wasn't getting. However, to their credit, I didn't say that I needed them. <laughs> yeah. And so here's a quote that I really like appreciated because I think it, it states that very well. She talks about at one point she needed surgery and John Cena was there for her and was like amazing. He slept next to her the entire time, canceled everything and was very supportive. And that was actually hard for her because she didn't like that he saw her vulnerable. She didn't like that she felt like a burden to him. And she goes, not only did I operate from a place of fear of losing something I wanted, but I also wanted to be perfect for him because I wanted him to have a perfect life. I so desperately did not want to rock the boat that I threw a lot of things I wanted right out of it. I was continually dishonest about what I wanted with myself and with my ex because I was operating out of that place of fear. By continually putting him first and choking back my own voice, I didn't give him the respect of actually hearing about how I was doing. I didn't give him or our relationship the benefit of the doubt that maybe it could handle more. Because I assumed he was willing to make sacrifices, I did not persistently ask. Because I was so fixated on what I believed he wanted, I made many decisions on his behalf, even though I was losing myself in the process. So ultimately, it, the wedding was kind of a breaking point. She doesn't get into like what the details of the breaking point are, but she's like, my need to people please just exploded. And she kind of suggests that in the way that her and Brie want to do when things come to a head, they like rage beyond belief and it all crumbled. And she's like, what's been really painful is this idea that I did it all for TV. She's like, people think the whole thing was fake, but she's like, it wasn't fake. And I think they have a lot of respect and love for each other. Something Brie says earlier in the book is that John Cena did not have to sign on to that TV show and nobody knew about her and John Cena before the TV show was greenlit, but he did it to support her and he never made any money off of it. Like he fully showed up to like lend his celebrity and to like help her succeed. They talk a little bit about some other medical traumas that they were in, both vagina related. I don't know that we need to get into those. So this last chapter I felt conflicted about because on the one hand they like get into these vagina traumas that are like cysts and stuff that I'm like, okay, great. Break down the stigma, be honest. They're very open and stuff. And I think that's great for a lot of women who feel a lot of shame about their bodies, but then they use it to like sell their lingerie. That's hundred percent cotton. Therefore good for you. And then Brie does a really honest and vulnerable discussion about what it was like for her to give birth. Of course, her and Brian are super like hippie to be freaks. She wanted to have a natural childbirth. It ended up being like a dangerous birth where like they gave her a Picotin to induce. And then that wasn't enough. So then, They had to give her a C-section. She pushed off the epidural as long as she could. And she's like, in hindsight, I really regret that because I was in so much pain to prove what to who. And she's like, ultimately, I was so exhausted from the pain that like the first time I held my child, I was completely asleep and I wasn't able to be there. And she's like, I just want 
there to be less stigma around what women do for themselves. So the big thing about this last chapter is that it's promoting their brands, which is like a women's brand and a wine brand. And I do think that that just like is the final chapter of every reality star yeah. Or like any celebrity with a brand, the last chapter in their memoir is always a sales pitch. The end of any person's personal arc is like, and I got through all of this. I got through the assaults and the broken family and the broken engagement and the physical pain and the broken leg so that I could bring you this 100% cotton lingerie. <laughs> she said she doesn't feel great about her stomach, but she doesn't Photoshop it so other women feel better. Of all the products, it doesn't feel the most evil. There's a couple things that they like rehash in here about their brand, which I found a little bit teetery. Okay, so they talk one about the way that they wanted very specific materials and very specific like ethical production. So that's why the products were more expensive and they wish that they'd done a better job of explaining the prices when they launched because a lot of their fans felt very abandoned by the high price point. And I actually think that that is like kind of a complicated issue and I took their side on it. Like that is true. Like ethical production and good materials are more expensive and they make more expensive products. And because we're conditioned to like an Amazon and fast fashion world, people don't realize it. And you do have a lot of times explain products if you're going to charge more for them. Mm -hmm. The other thing they say is that because it was a lingerie brand and they wanted to do inclusive sizing and this and that, but when they did the first photo shoot, the plus size samples weren't in yet. So like the first photos were all just like skinny white girls and they mm. they intended to be inclusive and they intended all of these things. It just didn't come through. And I was like, I don't know, man. You could have done it or you you didn't do it. But like explaining it away in this book, I'm like, just don't. I, yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine being like, we have to get the photo shoot today. Like, just get the samples in first. Any final thoughts on Brie and Nikki Bella? I want to watch wrestling. I was like, this is fun. They're cool. I like them. I, I went to a SummerSlam and it was super fun. It's I'm like a just- SummerSlam buggy. No. <laughs> <laughs> You guys, this week we have the incomparable Teffy of Hello Teffy fame on the Patreon. We have one of the most chaotic, fun, all over the place, insanely long conversations with her. If If you've ever wondered what it would be like for us two and Teffy to just sit down for a coffee... We talked for like two hours about just who knows. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. We love her so much. And as always, we love you guys. And Ashley. Yeah, Claire? Who do you want to thank? I want to thank our five-star reviewers. Thank you to Be A Love, Love You Right Back, Lindsay Rose Adams, You Smell Fucking Incredible. Thank you, Crazy Eye Killer with a Heart of Gold. I saw right into those crazy eyes and right to the heart of gold. Thank you, Melanie Martinez Lover. Thank you for lovering this podcast. Thank you, Katie Fish. I hope that your water is extra fresh today. Well, unless you're a saltwater fish. Thank you, Violet Shin, my favorite color of Shin. Thank you, Gabinator96. You're my favorite governor that California's ever had. Thank you, Diane Minogue. I can't get you out of my head. Thank you, April Joy Paycheck. You bring me so much joy. Thank you, Just a Girl Who Loves Chocolate. I love you more than you love chocolate. That's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. And if you haven't left a five-star review, I don't have to tell you. But you know we'd love it. See you guys next week.